Please turn in your Bibles with me to Luke 18. And as you turn there, let me just uh, say a few things here this morning. First of all, happy fourth anniversary, Bethany Community Church. By, by God's grace, we, some of us didn't know if we'd make it through the terrible twos, but uh, now here we are ready for the fantastic fours, and so we're excited about that. Uh, if, Rebecca, if you just advance this, the slide here this morning, as you're turning to uh, Luke 18, I want to just, I think this morning's an appropriate time just to take a minute and talk about a few things, and we'll be talking in more detail ab- about these things this evening, but I want to remind us this morning as we're celebrating our fourth anniversary, as we're adding a service, as we're preparing for a, a building ministry, r- remind us as to, to what our purpose is. I think it would be uh, a very tragic thing if we got so wrapped up in the, the what we're doing or the what we want the building to look like and that we forgot the why, why we exist as a church. And our church, we believe, exists to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and prepare his people to worship him forever. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, a hymn we proclaim, Jesus Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that's what we believe the purpose of our church is, to glorify God, and we glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, and preparing Christ's people to worship him forever. In fact, uh, another slide here that uh, I think kind of helps us understand this, this graphically. So if you think of this, this outer circle as our proclaiming ministries, these are the things that we're doing outside the, the figurative walls of our church. And then the smaller circle is our, our preparing, we're, our discipling ministries. And our proclaiming ministries are ministries like our compassion ministries and our orphan care ministries, our biblical counseling, the missions and evangelism. Those are things that are taking place outside the walls of the church. And then inside the church, we're preparing people, worship, Sunday school, care groups, special classes like bringing the Bible to life and the Gospel Institute. And then we're doing one-on-one discipleship and shepherding discipleship. These are things that are taking place inside the walls of the church. And and yet, we don't exist to stay inside the walls. We're, we're to go out and proclaim. And as we proclaim, we're to bring people in and disciple them. And so we'll be talking about this more this evening. But I just kind of want to give you a little bit of a taste or a reminder as to why it is we do the things that we do. We don't exist for doing a, a lot of, of other things outside the scope of our focus. Our focus is to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and preparing his people to worship him forever. And that will, I think, really affect us as we think about what we want a building to do and what we want a building to look like. And we don't start by saying, well, you know what, I, I really think that, um, you know, mauve carpeting is the way to go for the building. I'm very adamant about that. No, we, we start with what's our purpose? What's well, to glorify God, which mauve carpeting could never do. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Uh, I don't even know what mauve is. I just threw that out there. So hopefully that helps us, and uh, look forward to this evening. Uh, if you're able to make it, coming and, and talking about what uh, what God may have in store for our ch- church, uh, for His glory, and by His grace. And we've existed by grace for the last four years, and we are confident that we will continue to pursue God by His grace in the future, if the Lord wills, and if He doesn't return first. Well, please stand with me as we look at Luke 18. Verses 9 through 14, we're looking at two prayers and and two paths to God. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. If you don't have a a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to grab uh, a copy uh, as you leave, or you can even go now and and grab one off the table. We'd love that to be our gift for you. Luke uh, chapter 18, verse 9. 
Jesus, Luke says that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. May God be glorified. May we be strengthened through the reading of his word, and let's, let's pray. Father, as we continue our time of worship this morning, we are grateful, we are humbled as we think about your, your grace in the, our lives and the lives of this church. We, we pray that you would cause us to pursue you by your grace through faith alone in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The way that my children think and process information is, is very fascinating to me. If I were to go up to an adult and ask an adult, uh, look, here are two options, option A or option B, nine times out of ten, an adult would choose either A or B. Uh, not so with my children. I'm sure for those of you who are children, you've experienced this as well. For those of you who have children, you've, you've seen this as well. Um, if I tell my children, would you like uh, option A or B, nine times out of ten, they are going to say, well, well Dad, what about C, D, E and W, okay? Uh, so w- we have this, these cards we read as a family sometimes at the dinner table, and they sometimes present these scenarios. And so the scenario will be uh, something like, would you rather be famous or would you rather not be famous and able to help people? And my children will say, well, Dad, I would like to be so famous that it helps people. Or I would like to help people so much that I become famous. Or, Dad, I'd like to be so famous so unknown that it's like famous that I'm that unknown. I mean, uh, that they want C, D, and E options. I ask them, uh, kids, would you like a snack? Uh, would you like some graham crackers or animal crackers? Dad, uh, I would like a popsicle. I, I would like an omelet. Dad, why don't you make some pancakes? I mean, there's just there were all these different options. Would you like to play outside or inside? Dad, can we play in the attic? I mean, it, it's not bad things, right? They just want more options. There are times in life, though, where your options are limited. It really is kind of an either-or scenario. You're at your wedding, and the pastor asks, do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife, etc., etc.? There's really only two options for you at that moment. You either answer in the affirmative, I, I do, or something like that, or you answer some other way, and and the wedding becomes a funeral service, right? I mean, there, there's really not a lot of options there. When it comes to your relationship with God, there aren't a lot of options. At the moment that you recognize that you're a sinner, 
you recognize that your relationship with God has been broken because of your sin, and you determine to do something about it, there aren't a lot of options open for you. You either decide, I must throw myself on the mercy of God by faith in Jesus Christ, trust, trusting in God alone, that, that's all I can do. I throw myself on the mercy of God. Or, as you try to pursue a relationship with God, you can do so by pursuing that relationship on the basis of your works to some degree. Two paths to God. One path says, I'm going to be dependent upon my works to some degree in some fashion. The other path to God says, all I can do, the only thing I can do in order to pursue a relationship with God is to throw myself on his mercy. There are no works that I can bring to this relationship as it begins, and there are no works that I can bring to this relationship as this relationship continues in order to be found acceptable to God. And so what I want to do with you this morning as we look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, and these, these two prayers, is, is to see these two paths to God. And I want you to determine which path you're on. And you might say, well, well Daniel, I, I know that I'm on the path of, of trusting in God. I don't, I don't believe that works can save me. I don't believe that works are how I'm found righteous. Be careful as you say that. And let's probe a little bit deeper this morning. Perhaps you might say that intellectually, but as we really examine the way that you pursue God, perhaps we do see that you and I at times are at least tempted to pursue that relationship by works or to have confidence in our standing before God on the basis of our works. So we may say, oh yeah, I, I believe that you're saved by faith, and, and yet at the same time we say, well, but you know, I kind of, I kind of know that I'm doing okay because I, I have really good devotional skills. Or, or I have my family really together, so I know that things are, are okay with me and God. Or I go to Bethany Community Church. I know things are good between me and God. I want us to look at these two prayers and consider these two paths to God. The first path that we're going to look like is a path of self-righteous works, and then the second path that we're going to look at is a path of God-exalting humility. Let's first look at this path of self-righteous works, then we're going to look at the path of God-exalting humility. So let's first consider this path of self-righteous works in verses 9 through 12. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 9. It says that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Remember what we saw last week as we looked at Luke chapter 18 and looked at the first eight verses? We, we saw that as Jesus began that uh, Luke tells us why he was telling them this parable. And he does the same thing again. He, he kind of lays out the purpose of the parable right at the beginning of the, of the, of the paragraph here. He tells this parable to who? to people who, ha who have a twofold problem. They trust in themselves that they're righteous, and as they do so, they look down at others with contempt. Now, does this apply to you and I? I would suggest that each of us have some amount of struggle with self-righteousness, with looking at ourselves and considering ourselves righteous and looking at other people 
and considering them not righteous. And what we do is this, and what the Pharisees had done was this. We, we take something, some aspect of the Christian life or the life of faith, and it isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be something good. But we take that thing, and it's a thing that we have, and other people in our estimation don't have this thing to the same degree that we do. And so we look at the people who have this thing the same way that we do, and, and we, we say they're part of us. And then we look at those who don't have this thing the same way that we do, and we look down on them. And the thing can be lots of different items. We can say, you know what, uh, this thing that I have is I, I'm a good prayer I'm, I'm really good at prayer. And so we look at this thing of prayer and we say, I've, I've got this down. Or maybe we're a very generous person. And so we say, you know what, I'm a, I'm a very generous person. I look at all these other people who aren't as generous as me and, and, you know, woe on them. Thank goodness that I'm such a generous person. Or, you know, I, I go to a Bible teaching church, Bethany Community Church, great Bible teaching, really good looking pastors. I mean, this church has got it going on. I'm not saying I say this, you say this. And, um, and, and <laughs> Whitney says it. Um, I've got this thing that, that I look at, and, and this thing gives me confidence that my relationship with God is where it needs to be. And other people don't have this thing the same way that I have it, and therefore I look down on them. That's who the parable is to. And again, my suggestion would be that most of us struggle with this to one degree or another. So here's the story Jesus tells to people who struggle with self-righteousness. He says, two men go into the temple to pray, and so far, so good, right? God's house is to be a house of prayer. He says in Psalm 56, 7, a house of prayer for all peoples. And so the, the two men go into this temple to pray, and one is a Pharisee, and the other is a tax collector. We've talked before about the different groups, the different sects within the, the Jewish first century culture. You had the, first of all, you had a group called the Herodians, and the Herodians were, were kind of the most liberal group. They were very secular. They were the people who were close with Rome, very close allegiance to, to Rome. And so the Herodians would have been the, the group that the tax collector was probably a part of. And then less liberal than, less secular at least, than the Herodians were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were those who were kind of in charge of the temple. They were a very wealthy group, and so you had the, the Sadducees who were part of first century Jewish religious life. And then the most conservative group in mainstream Jewish life were the Pharisees. They were the most conservative doctrinally. They were most conservative in their practice. And by the way, when Jesus says that a tax collector and a Pharisee go into the temple to pray, you know what his audience is thinking? His audience, now, now we here in the 21st century, we, kinda, we know the end of the story. So we kind of think of both of these characters perhaps negatively. But Jesus' audience, as he says, a tax collector and a Pharisee, his audience views the Pharisee with respect and the tax collector with contempt. The, the Pharisees were those who were in charge of the synagogues, in charge of the teaching institutions. They, they believed God's word was literally true, and they took it seriously, and they were concerned about righteousness and righteous conduct, and they were held in esteem by the people that Jesus is talking to. Both of these men go into the temple to pray, Jesus says, and the Pharisee 
prays first. What does he pray? Look at verse 11. It says the Pharisee standing by himself, and perhaps a better translation there would be uh, the Pharisee uh, prayed about himself thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And let me give you some examples. I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. I thank you that I'm not unjust. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. And I thank you that I'm not like the tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. Now, here's my question for you. Is this a bad prayer or a good prayer? You said, well, anyway, again, no. the end of the story, <laughs> not a good prayer. But, but why? What makes this a bad prayer? Look at how he starts off. I thank, I thank you, God. He, he begins a prayer by, by thanking God. That's not a bad thing, right? It's a, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. And look, look, look what else. He's talking about uh, he's talking about these wicked actions, and he's and he's not doing those things. Isn't that a, a biblical thing to pray? Psalm one nineteen. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Uh, verses seven and nine of Psalm one nineteen. I will praise you with an upright heart when I hear your righteous rules. I I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Verse twelve. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. These seem like good things not to do, right? So that's not the problem with the prayer. What about the things that he says that he's doing? He says, Look, I, I, I'm, I'm fasting and I'm tithing. Are those bad things to do? No. Throughout Scripture, we see godly men and women engaging in fast. Moses fasts in Deuteronomy 9. All the people mourn and, and weep and fast for Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel 1. David fasts for his child before his child dies in 2 Samuel 12. Esther calls the people to fast in Esther 4.16. Daniel in Daniel 9.3, it says, I, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayers and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. In Acts 13, the church fasts before they send Paul and Barnabas on the, their, their, their missionary journey. So fasting isn't wrong, right? What about tithing? No, tithing isn't a, a sinful activity. Leviticus 27.30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed or of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord. It, it's holy to the Lord. And so tithing isn't in and of itself a, a wrong thing to do. It, it can be a holy thing to the Lord. So it's not wrong to not be a bad person. It's not wrong to tithe. It's not wrong to fast. It's not wrong to thank God. What's wrong with this prayer? Why doesn't God find this prayer acceptable? Let me suggest to you that what we see here is a prayer that is focused on self-righteousness. It's almost like how he begins the prayer has nothing to do with the rest of what he says, right? He begins by, by saying, thank you, God, but, but what is he thankful for? <laughs> There's nothing that God 
does in the Pharisee's estimation that, that makes him avoid these sins or enables him to, to do these things. What, what do you see over and over again? You, you see that this guy has an I problem. I, I, I. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. I thank you. I'm not like this other man. man. I, I'm not like these other men, like this tax collector. Over and over again, the Pharisee, as he prays this prayer, we see that he's self-righteous. He has nothing really to thank God for. We see not only is he self-righteous, he's selective in his comparison. Who does he choose to compare himself to? He doesn't compare himself to, to, to very, very godly people. Compares himself to adulterers, extortioners, unjust people, the, the people that he views as, as kind of at the bottom of society, the, the tax collector. To be me, me like, like me saying, you know, I'm a really good basketball player compared to three year olds. You know, I can hold a ball in my hand and, and dribble without drooling. I'm a really good basketball player. The Pharisee, as he prays this prayer, is selective in his comparison with who he's comparing himself to. And then look, look what else. He's, he's, he's selective in the consideration of his conduct. I thank you that I tithe and fast. Well, that's super. But he's missed, like, the two greatest commandments, <laughs> loving God and loving neighbor. He picks two things that he does well, and he's able to focus on those two things pretty well. And he's able to say, God, I thank you that I, I'm a good person, that I'm righteous in my own eyes because I do these two things, fasting and tithing. And these aren't, the, while those are good things to do with a right heart attitude, those aren't even the most important things about being obedient to God. But he's picked two things that he can do without God's enabling in terms of just checking off the box. I had kind of a funny thought this morning. I'm a little hesitant to share it, but this is first service. Dry run-through, dry rehearsal. This may not make it into second service. This morning I was, I was putting on my shoes and, and, and my belt. And I realized, you know, th this shows you my heart. I said, you know what? Last four years, I've only worn two pairs of shoes to church, and only one belt is reversible. I'm a very frugal person. I've really got this frugality thing down. I'm using my money for God's glory because I'm wearing the same shoes and belt. I didn't think all, some of that, I thought. What have I done? I've picked one item. <laughs> I'm not talking about all the other ways that I've spent my money over the last four years. I'm picking one thing, and I've got it down because i got my finances down because I'm wearing the same shoes. But that's how self-righteousness works, right? We pick one item that we can focus on and say, I've got this down, and therefore, I'm doing pretty well. I'm comparing myself to other people, and therefore, I feel very confident about where I am spiritually. In fact, here's a statement I want you to think about as we think about the path of self-righteous works. What is this path? Here it is. We follow the path, we follow this path when we engage in horizontal comparisons with others, selectively highlighting our strengths and others' faults in order to justify ourselves. What does this path of self-righteous works look like? 
It's a path that we pursue when we engage in horizontal comparisons. That is, we look at other people around us, and as we look at other people around us, we selectively highlight our strengths, and we selectively focus on others' faults in order to justify ourselves. That's self-righteous works. And a person pursues this path as they engage in that activity. Let me give you a couple signs that you're on the path of self-righteous works. Let me give you kind of six signs that you might be pursuing this path of self-righteous works. Uh, One sign, one sign is when you ignore big issues and focus on tiny issues. When you focus, when you ignore the big issues that God has called you to, to consider in your spiritual life, and you focus on tiny issues. The Pharisee really had tithing and fasting down, but was completely ignoring God's greater commandments about loving him and loving other people. We say things like, I've read the latest book on relationships. But then you ask, well, how are you doing at forgiving other people? Eh, I've read the latest book on relationships. I, I, I go to Sunday school and care group. Yeah, but, but how are you doing on sacrificially loving your spouse or your friend or your parents, being obedient to your parents? You see, a person pursuing self-righteous work is going to focus on tiny things that they can handle on their own and and show them and say, look how well I'm doing in these things and how poorly other people are doing and, 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 and ignoring the big issues. What's another sign that you're pursuing self-righteous works on a path of self-righteousness? Well, a second sign would be to examine the lives of others for the purpose of finding fault. A person who's pursuing a path of self-righteous work is going to look at other people's lives and look at other people's lives very closely and be very aware of what other people are doing. That person isn't very punctual. That person doesn't dress the right way. That person uh, tends to, to say things not very carefully like I do. That person doesn't have their children under control. That person doesn't obey their parents the way that I do. A person who's on a path of self-righteousness is very aware of the faults in others and looking and watching. A third characteristic of a self-righteous person, a person who's pursuing this this path of self-righteousness is related. It's that they look down on others, right? So not only are they out there trying to find faults with other people in order to make themselves feel, feel good, they, they, they look down on others as they, as they do so. And then a fourth characteristic, again related, is they lack compassion for others. You know, this Pharisee, as he looks at the tax collector, as he talks about the unjust person, as he talks about the adulterer, you see that he lacks compassion All he is is thankful that he's not of that group. He seems to lack compassion for people who are part of that group. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul talks about the opponents of the believer. And he says to, to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. 
you know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. A person who's self-righteous looks upon people and doesn't feel compassion for them when they see people who are engaged in various sins, but instead looks at people who are engaged in those sins and thinks, well, at least I'm better than them. They've brought this on themselves. Paul is talking to Timothy about people who are actively opposing Timothy and his ministry. And instead of being angry at those people, instead of looking on them with disdain or anger or wrath, there's a sense of compassion and love for people who are attacking him. I think that's very relevant as we consider our current political climate. Things get kind of heated in an election year in the fall. Things get very personal and our emotional feelings, at least mine, can sometimes get the better of us. If we are not reliant upon God's grace, we can easily tr- turn into the caricature of self-righteousness that our opponents sometimes paint of us. A fifth characteristic I think that's important to think about, kind of encompassing, is that we place confidence in our works instead of the God who produces the works. So you say, well, Daniel, are you saying I shouldn't fast? Are you saying I shouldn't tithe? Are you saying I shouldn't read my Bible? Are you saying I shouldn't go to Bethany Community Church? No, 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 of course not. But, but what we do as we, as we are pursuing a path of self-righteousness is we begin to place our confidence in those things instead of the God who produces those things within us. Tolstoy, the, the Russian novelist, one time, Kent Hughes says that one time Tolstoy wrote this. Tolstoy wrote, I've not yet met a single man who was as morally as good as I. I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. Really? <laughs> That's not the heart of humility. It's the heart of self-righteousness. The final characteristic that you're on this path of self-righteous works is you have an emotional response based upon your comparison with other people. You have an emotional response based upon your comparison with other people. You say, well, Daniel, I I don't look down on other people. I I probably have the, the, the opposite reaction. I look at what's going on in other people's lives. I look at other moms and how they have their kids together. I I look at at other marriages. I I look at other kids at school, other Christians in the youth group. I I look at these other people, and as I look at them, I feel bad. I feel bad as I look at my own life because I'm not doing the same things that they're doing. That's also a sign that you're pursuing a path of self-righteous works. You pursue this path when you engage in horizontal comparisons with others. And your emotional state, your confidence before God, is based on how that comparison goes. That's the path of self-righteous works. And it's one option available to you as you begin to pursue a relationship with God or as you continue to pursue your relationship with God. Let's look at the other path. Let's look at the other path. This is the path 
of God-exalting humility. And you and I pursue this path when we engage in not a horizontal comparison with others, but a vertical comparison with God, acknowledging our utter unworthiness and crying out for his mercy in order to be justified by him. Look at what Jesus says next, verse 13. The tax collector... And again, Jesus' audience, as they hear Jesus say tax collector, they would have been revolted. A tax collector wasn't even welcome in the synagogue. A person who decided to become a a tax collector was, in essence, separating himself from Jewish religious life. He just knew that if he pursued that vocation, he would have nothing to do with Jewish religious life. He would have nothing to do with polite society. The tax collector, and Jesus' audience just cringes as he mentions that profession the tax collector by contrast to the pharisee the the one who is pursuing righteousness in the eyes of the people the tax collector stands far off he won't even lift his eyes up to heaven he doesn't look around him at other people he's considering who he is in light of god's holiness and he as he recognizes his state before god beat his breast saying god Be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see the contrast with the prayer of the Pharisee? The Pharisee, the main subject of his prayer is himself. I thank you. I am not like other men. I fast. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector as he prays who is the subject of his prayer it's god god you please it's an entreaty be merciful you act you extend your mercy to me the sinner why does why must god be the subject of his prayer It's all he's got. There's no other viable alternative that the tax collector sees as he encounters the reality of his sin. He understands as he compares himself to God, this path of self-righteousness ain't going to work. The only path that's open to him is the path of throwing himself on the mercy of God. It's a God-exalting humility because it recognizes the utter holiness of God. And so he cries out to God for his mercy. It's the prayer. It's the prayer of those who rightly understand God's holiness. Isaiah 64, 7. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Paul in 1 Timothy 1 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came in the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. It's the prayer of, of Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David prays and, and, he, and he says this to God after he, had, after he had sinned and had Uriah killed in order to be, in order to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. 
This is what da- as Nathan confronts David, this is the psalm that David writes in response. Psalm 51. By the way, th- there is no there's no provision in the sacrificial system under which David was under that covers a sin like that. David couldn't go, well, I'm just going to, you know, my bad. I'm going to go offer some sacrifice and we'll take care of it. What choice does David have left? All he can do is throw himself on God's mercy. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And notice the vertical comparison in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, you say, wait a minute, David, there's, there's a dead guy over here that you kind of sinned against him too, right? What David is saying is, is ultimately, all my sin is, is in comparison with God's holiness. And ultimately, all my sin is directed against a holy God. And as David engages in that vertical comparison between his conduct and God's holiness, the only thing that he can do, the only alternative to, that's left to him is, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, not according to my works, but according to your steadfast love. What this requires is humility. Our natural tendency is to go through life trying everything we can do to feel pretty good about ourselves reading a story Walter Cronkite, the famous uh, news anchorman, told one time. He, he said that he and his, his wife were on a boat in a river, and uh, some, some young people drove past them shouting at him, and he, and he waved back at them. And his, his wife said, Walter, what do you think they were saying? He said, well, they were saying, hello, Walter, hello, Walter. She said, no, they were saying, low water, low water. We're in danger. We need to turn this thing around. Humility is not our natural tendency. Even for those of us who say, no, 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 I I understand I can't save myself. I understand I can't. I'm trusting in God alone. My faith is in him alone. Our tendency is to constantly seek to justify ourselves, to pursue the path of self-righteous works so we can point to something in and of ourselves that God has to find acceptable. God-exalting humility says, "I, I can't pursue that path. I must throw myself upon the mercy of God, not only at the moment of salvation, but on a day-by-day-by-day basis. As Paul tells the people in in, in Galatia, having begun by faith, are you now going to continue pursuing your relationship with God by works? And he says, no, you must not have that understanding of the gospel. What does God exalting humility look like? What are some signs of humility? Well, I think that a person who's practicing God exalting humility has a focus on God's holiness. A person who's practicing this type of of path in pursuing the relationship with God is going to be mindful of, of God's utter holiness. A person who's pursuing this path to God is going to have an understanding 
of their own works and understand that their own works are, are as filthy rags compared as compared with, with God's holiness. A person that's pursuing God-exalting humility is going to engage in genuine repentance. We've talked before about what repentance truly is. A person who's repentant falls upon the mercy of God. They recognize that the conduct that they're engaging in is sinful conduct. There's an emotional response to that saying, I no longer wish to engage in this conduct. And so they, by faith, turn from their works to God. And a person that's engaged in self-righteous works is, is not going to do that. They're going to continue to find ways to justify their conduct, to justify the things that they're doing. A person who's engaging in God-exalting humility is going to turn from their sin to faith in God, trusting in God alone for their salvation, for God alone for their deliverance. A person who's humble is going to tremble at God's word. Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The person who has a God-exalting humility is going to respond to his word by trembling. As we begin to, to think about how to apply these things in our life, I want you to examine your own heart this morning. First of all, as we think about the beginning of your relationship with God, if I were to ask you, on what basis do you think you could stand before God? If I were to ask you, if, if you were to die tonight and, and you were, found yourself before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? Let me suggest to you that there aren't like a whole bunch of options of things you could say. It's not like, well, well some of you could say, um, well, because of the Ten Commandments, I've, I've obeyed them. Or some of the, you can say, well, because I've, I've worked real hard at, 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 at helping poor people. Or I've, I've worked real hard at being a good parent or a, a good kid or, or whatever. There, it's not like there's a whole bunch of different options out there of things you could say to God. You can either say, God, there's, there's no reason in and of me that you should let me into heaven. But your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for my sins, and I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. You can either say that, or you can say something wrong. Somehow dependent upon your own works for having a right standing before God. And then if I were to ask you not just about how you begin your relationship with God, but how are you pursuing your relationship with God again, it's not like there's a myriad of right answers. What we see in these two prayers are there are two paths to God, one a wrong path and one a right path. And the right path is a path saying, even as I continue my relationship with God, I understand that I pursue that relationship by looking vertically, looking to God and his holiness and continuing to fall upon him, asking for his grace as I pursue that relationship with him. That's what God calls us to do, and that's what you and I do by his 
grace. Jesus concludes the parable with these words, and they're words that we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, that is, declared right, declared righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I tell you this, the people in Jesus' audience who heard Jesus say these words about a tax collector and say these words about a Pharisee was shocked. It was scandalous. It went against their understanding of what righteousness is. It goes against our culture's understanding of what righteousness is, but it is the only way to be found acceptable to God, to have a God-exalting humility and exalted uh, humility that causes us to humble ourselves and exalt God and his holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the ability that we have through faith in him alone to come before you. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in how we are compared to others. Our confidence is in your son, Jesus Christ, his righteousness that we have access to because of his death on the cross, his shed blood for us, and his resurrection. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.